Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, listener. I'm glad you're here. Take a seat. Next to the fire. Welcome to Obscura, where we shine a light on the dark. Listener, in part one, you heard about a string of disappearances and murders of men in the southern U.S. state of Louisiana. It started in 1997, and as of 2005, a multi-jurisdictional task force has been established, but much to their own frustration, was making little, if any, progress. Several investigators felt they had a serial killer on their hands, but who this could be was anyone's guess. While the killer seemed to target younger men of a slight build, he was indiscriminate when it came to a racial preference, with both Caucasian and African-American men falling victim. The public appeared apathetic, which may have had a lot to do with the majority of the victims coming from low-income, uneducated backgrounds, often accompanied by criminal records and a history of drug use. There was a clear link between the victims, but no suspect. This was concerning, because by the summer of 2005, the bodies of a total of 20 men had been found dumped in various locations across St. Charles, Jefferson, Lafouche, and Terrebonne parishes, exposed to the elements of the subtropical southern Louisiana climate. And without any solid leads to go on, law enforcement seemed powerless to stop it. In part one, you also heard about 41-year-old Ronald Dominique, who grew up in the small town of Thibodeau in Lafouche Parish. Like the victims, Ronald came from a working-class background and identified as being gay, but didn't feel comfortable coming out to his conservative Southern family. By 2005, Ronald was working as a meter reader in the Terrebonne Parish seat of Homa, where he lived in his trailer on his sister's property on Bayou Blue Road. In his spare time, Ronald frequented gay bars in the local area and as far east as New Orleans. But despite his attempts to engage with his community and find like-minded friends, Ronald's introversion and awkward manner, many failed to make any meaningful social connections or forge lasting friendships, let alone a long-term romantic relationship. So with that said, let's get on with it. Part 6. Stormy Weather We pick back up in 2005, with the task force who was in the midst of piecing together the last movements of Wayne Smith, when Hurricane Katrina made landfall on the coast of the United States on August 29th, lashing southeastern Louisiana with winds of up to 167 miles per hour. Listener, you may recall a season one episode of Obscura that was also set against the bleak backdrop of Katrina, one of the most destructive extreme weather events ever seen in the history of the United States. In hurricane-prone areas of the country, it's not unusual for residents to mark the passage of time by referencing events to have occurred either before or after a particular storm. In the Big Bowl of New Orleans, 
where most of the land is below sea level. Levees failed. 80% of the city was flooded, and more than 800,000 residents of New Orleans was displaced. In numerous cases, 911 operators became the last contact that some people had with the outside world before succumbing to the destruction wrought by the storm. Complete wall and roof failure of residential and commercial buildings was not the exception, but the rule. Household debris, construction materials, trees and vehicles that swept through the air became lethal. Stormwater couldn't be pumped out, and human corpses couldn't be collected due to a lack of refrigerated storage available. Many first responders put their own safety and well-being at risk by working 24-hour shifts and entering high-risk situations to recover the dead, as well as reach people who are stranded and in unsafe situations. The official death toll? 1,836 people dead, but the figure is believed by many to be much higher. Katrina caused around $100 billion worth of damage, brought out the best and absolute worst of humanity. After the storm, the president of Jefferson Parish even went so far as to issue a lockout order for all parish residents who were not permitted to return to their homes until September 5th. Even if survivors weren't stranded in their homes, those who found themselves forced to seek refuge in public spaces were left wondering if maybe they wouldn't be better off on the streets vulnerable to other residents with malicious intentions and law enforcement officers, some of whom posed just as much of a risk to personal safety. While the immediate threat of the storm had passed, in the days, weeks, and months following the hurricane, a new logistical and political nightmare unfolded across the South. The extent of disorganization and lack of leadership, planning, and transparency as to when and how infrastructure and essential services would be restored left distressed residents feeling abandoned by the government. With no power, fresh water, sanitation, and medical supplies, unprecedented lawlessness swept the streets. In many circumstances, it was the Lord of the Flies come to life. Desperate residents took matters into their own hands and found themselves taking to looting to survive. This in turn incited the ugly face of vigilanteism, which targeted looters, who usually turned out to be poor and black. Some residents and law enforcement officials took to shooting suspected looters on site, whom in their eyes were breaking the law, despite the circumstances. Media coverage and editorializing of looting focused on African Americans, sending the message that this specific demographic were criminals who had little regard for the law. For law enforcement in the South, it was a PR disaster. The FBI office in New Orleans was itself situated in a low-lying area, and agents found themselves having to relocate physical evidence and files to a higher floor. Even then, the building lost a significant portion of the roof during the storm, and numerous case materials and evidence were destroyed. As the residents of Louisiana struggled to get back on their feet, police resources were not only 100% diverted, but unable to cope with the crippling workload that came with responding to the aftermath of Katrina. The task force investigation into the deaths of young men across several parishes was put on hold for at least the next six months, while law enforcement focused on storm recovery. This was putting aside the fact that some officers themselves lost their homes and people in their own families during the storm. And meanwhile, the person responsible continued to walk the streets without detection. The family of 44-year-old Chris DeVille hadn't heard from him since Hurricane Katrina hit. Chris was known around Homa, where he lived, and his brother worked as a police officer in nearby Lafouche Parish. Chris was physically fit, so his family were optimistic that he would have been able to cope with whatever difficulties he encountered as a result of the storm. And besides, some of them thought he might have evacuated up to northern Louisiana to escape the worst of severe weather. But as the weeks passed with no word or sign of Chris, his worried family knew something was wrong. It wasn't until October 14, 2005, when a Napoleonville farmer in Assumption Parish found a human skull in the middle of a gravel road, running through a sugarcane field that dental records identified the skull as belonging to Chris. The Daily Review newspaper reported that Chris's other remains, still fully clothed, were located in the bottom of a drainage canal nearby. To make matters more heartbreaking for the DeVille family, not only did Chris have to be farewelled in a closed casket, but for his grandmother, 
He was now the fourth young male relative in her family to be murdered. With cousins Daytrell Woods, August Watkins, and Wayne Smith, all having previously fallen victim to someone in their community. 21-year-old Homer resident Nicholas Pellegrin was known to close friends and family as T-Nick. He grew up with his sister and brother, and their parents eventually remarried. Nicholas was known to law enforcement, with an arrest record that included a drug offense and charges for disturbing the peace and burglary. Nicholas also had previously worked on an offshore oil rig, where he'd work a month on followed by two weeks off, and he enjoyed the routine. He loved spending time playing with his nieces and nephew and hanging out with his brother while they ate pizza and watched movies. His sister Jody described him as the kind of person who would, quote, do anything for anybody. Nicholas didn't own a car, but unlike other young men in his neighborhood, he hated walking and didn't like accepting rides from strangers, preferring to rely on his family to get around. In early November 2005, Nicholas was released from jail where he'd done time over a minor charge for switch plates. He soon found work doing construction on a friend's house in Lafouche Parish, which kept him busy. But following a phone call to a friend late on the evening of November 5th, Nick wasn't seen or heard from again. As reported by the Homa Courier newspaper, his family were immediately concerned. As his father had been told following Nicholas's release from jail, the people were looking for him. The day before Nicholas disappeared, one of his enemies had threatened that he'd be, quote, dealt with. It wasn't unusual for Nicholas to have arguments with his friends, but in the context of this disappearance, this took on a sinister new meaning. On November 9th, four days after Nicholas last spoke to his friend, a man driving a four-wheeler found the fully clothed, partially decomposed body of a Caucasian man in a field behind a residential area near the Baja Trail off Chrisom Road in St. Charles. It was Nicholas, who had been sexually assaulted, and whose body showed signs of being bound and strangled. The Pellegrin family refused to believe that Nicholas had fallen victim to a serial killer. They were adamant that he'd been killed by a local drug dealer over a drug debt. Nicholas's mother told the Homa Courier newspaper that the family was so traumatized following her son's murder as she slept with a baseball bat near her bed. Nicholas's brother had to quit his job. As we take a moment's pause in the middle of our exploration of the dark corners of humanity, let's explore a different kind of mystery, one that takes you back to the roaring 1920s with June's Journey. In this hidden object game, you slip into the role of June Parker, tasked with unraveling the murder mystery of her sister. Each scene is meticulously designed, filled with hidden clues that lead you deeper into a storyline, riddled with danger, romance, and scandalous family secrets. I've personally ventured through the ornate parlors of New York to the charming streets of Paris within this game, each chapter peeling back layers of a complex narrative that's as engaging as it is visually stunning. Beyond just solving mysteries, June's journey invites you to escape into an era of opulence as you build and customize your very own estate island. It's the perfect blend of challenge and relaxation that I find incredibly refreshing, especially after delving into the often intense themes of our podcast. For those of you who thrive on solving puzzles and uncovering stories, June's journey offers a chance to channel your inner detective. Discover your inner detective when you download June's journey for free today on iOS and Android. Step into June's shoes and help her solve the ultimate mystery. Can you uncover the truth behind her sister's tragic demise? Now, let's dive back into our own mysterious journey here on Obscura. Stay tuned and keep your wits about you. Why are so many dogs suffering from health issues? Actress Catherine Eagle, who's helped save over 16,000 dogs through her foundation, says she's seeing more issues with dog joints, odors, and health than ever before. And after doing a ton of research, she feels there's one place we can look to improve any dog's health, their food. What she's discovered is that the way many dog foods are made can actually create toxins that could be wrecking our dog's health. And this is true even for many premium brands. Fortunately, she found that just by adding a few special superfoods to her dog's food, she saw huge transformations in their health. She's made a 20-minute video 
explaining step-by-step step how anyone can do the same thing to see incredible changes in their dog's health. Listener, I've watched this video, and honestly, it's 20 minutes well spent. The health of my animals means everything to me. This stuff has improved the coats and energy of mine, and they love it. Normally they are picky with food, but they really enjoy this stuff. Go to badlandsfood.com slash obscura and watch Catherine's video right now. Again, that's B-A-D-L-A-N-D-S-F-O-O-D dot com slash obscura. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Now more than ever, the task force were in desperate need of a solid lead. Given that many of the victims had criminal backgrounds for petty offenses, investigators decided it was worth getting local parole officers to check in with their current parolees to see if they had any unusual encounters with strangers on the streets. When parole officer Bill Nall made contact with one of his parolees, things finally started to heat up for the investigation. Ricky Wallace, who was also known on the street as Motormouth, was on parole for distribution and possession of cocaine. When Ricky's mother spoke to Bill, she told him that Ricky was having terrible nightmares about someone tying him up. Coincidentally, Ricky was a friend of Chris DeVille and knew what happened to Chris. Ricky himself told Bill that he had indeed had a frightening experience earlier in November the sequence of events revealed that this was estimated to have occurred just after the latest victim, Nicholas Pellegrin, went missing. Bill Nall had also previously been the parole officer for Nicholas regarding a minor drug charge. He remarked to the task force that he hadn't found him to be any trouble at all. Ricky told Bill that while walking along the street in East Homa one evening, he saw a vehicle pass him two or three times which then circled back to him and slowed to a stop. A chubby white man in a truck showed Ricky a picture of a woman and explained it was his wife who wanted to have sex with a black man. The driver asked Ricky if he'd like to come back to the man's trailer to have sex with his wife, and Ricky agreed. The pair drove back to a trailer on Bayou Blue Road, where the man told Ricky to get undressed, tie himself up, and lie on his stomach. Ricky quickly refused. The man explained that his wife was shy and just wanted to make sure she felt safe before coming into the room to meet Ricky. But street-smart Ricky wasn't budging. The men argued back and forth for about a half an hour, with Ricky finally saying, You can talk a hole in your head. I ain't getting tied up. Eventually, the man gave in and dropped Ricky back near where he'd picked him up earlier. The terrified Ricky was too scared to tell anyone at first, but he somehow instinctively knew this was the man who'd killed his friend Chris. Bill asked Ricky if he could remember where the trailer was parked, and Ricky offered to show him on the way to the police station to make his statement. Investigators decided to pay a visit to the trailer to see who lived there, and they found that the letters in the mailbox were addressed to one Ronald J. Dominique. With Ronald tentatively identified as the owner of the trailer, investigators asked Ricky to identify the man who picked him up in a photo lineup. This confirmed Ronald as the man in question. Officers returned to the trailer. Despite being familiar with Ronald's appearance from a photograph, they were still somewhat surprised when the door opened to reveal a heavily overweight, unassuming-looking man of average height. He was leaning on a walking cane. Ronald was polite and cooperative when he spoke to the police, explaining that he was relying on the cane to help get around due to his debilitating heart condition. Officers asked Ronald to accompany them to the station to clear some things up. Back at the station, Ronald openly told police that he was gay and that he did indeed pick up Ricky Wallace and bring him back to his trailer on the evening in question. But his interpretation of events was that Ricky had consented to bondage play and that tying him up was a part of the agreed dynamic. Ronald agreed to provide a DNA sample, but the task force knew they were in a race against the clock to get it tested. 
Given the conflicting accounts of what transpired between Ronald and Ricky, there was nothing for police to charge Ronald with following his initial interview. No DNA was able to be recovered from the majority of the crime scenes, but investigators were pinning their hopes on DNA found on the bodies of Oliver LeBanks and Manuel Reed. The backlog at the state crime lab meant that samples were now taking up to a year to be tested. While they waited, investigators dug deeper into Ronald's background, and what they found helped to build their case, at least circumstantially. Ronald had been open with police about being gay, and when they checked into his background, they found his 1996 charge for aggravated rape, the details of which bore striking similarities to Ricky's account. Further inquiries revealed Ronald had previous ties to the gay scene in Homa and showed that he'd lived in and around areas where many of the bodies had been dumped, especially New Orleans Airport. But this didn't seem to fit with the man who spent his Sundays as a volunteer bingo caller and seemed to have limited mobility due to a chronic heart condition. Part 7. Crimea River As 2005 became 2006, no more bodies turned up. This was a positive, but of course, could have meant anything. If the killer wasn't Ronald Dominique, anything may have happened. The killer could have died. He could have been incarcerated. He could have moved interstate. Whatever the reason, the murder seemed to have come to an abrupt halt since Nicholas Pellegrin was found dead the previous November. 42-year-old Ronald hadn't been seen behaving suspiciously during this period, but the task force investigating the murders had an ace up their sleeve. The initial DNA results had come back from previous victim Oliver LeBanks, and it was a match to Ronald. It was a step closer, but it wasn't the slam dunk the task force needed when it came to the prospect of getting a watertight conviction following an arrest. The book The Bayou Strangler by author Fred Rosen explains that the DNA match that came back only matched for mitochondrial DNA, indicating that the killer came from someone in Ronald Dominique's gene pool, but didn't confirm Ronald as the standalone perpetrator. What was needed to conclusively link Ronald to a crime scene and nobody else was nuclear DNA, which provides a direct match. The task force ramped things up and started conducting 24-hour surveillance on Ronald Dominique. In the summer of 2006, another breakthrough came, with a mitochondrial DNA hit against victim Angel Mejia, who had been murdered in 1999. And then, another local man went missing. Twenty-seven-year-old Christopher Sutterfield was one of three children and known by his family and friends as a good-natured joker. Christopher had been living in the St. Charles Bypass Road in Thibodeau, but in September 2006, he and two friends moved into a room at the A. Bear Motel in Homa on Highway 182. It was here that he met and began dating his girlfriend, who was also a resident of the complex. At the time, Christopher was unemployed, but he'd previously worked at jobs doing painting and sandblasting. Known to law enforcement, his criminal record included charges for public intoxication, theft, aggravated battery with a dangerous weapon, drug offenses, and contempt of court. On October 14, 2006, Christopher had been out drinking with his friends and girlfriend. The group returned to the motel, where Christopher went outside for his cigarette. When his girlfriend came looking for him, he told her he was just taking a ride with a friend, but he wouldn't be long. The last Christopher's girlfriend saw, he was being driven away in a truck she didn't recognize. The following day, Christopher's fully clothed body was found near Tippy Canal Boat Landing on Highway 69, outside White Castle, midway between Thibodeau and Baton Rouge, in Iberville Parish. The task force was equal parts frustrated and deflated, given they felt they were on the cusp of an arrest. But there were now 23 victims. Ronald Dominique knew he was under surveillance, and men were still disappearing, only to turn up murdered. The task force decided enough was enough, and even though they didn't have the nuclear DNA match they'd been hoping for, they requested two arrest warrants in Jefferson Parish for the first-degree murders of Oliver LeBanks and Manuel Reed. At the same time, the constant police presence outside Laney's home had now proved too much for her to bear. 
In late November 2006, she told him to leave, and he relocated to Bunkhouse Inn, a shelter for the homeless on Main Street in Homa, which coincidentally happened to be owned by an officer of the Homa PD. On December 1st, 2006, armed with an arrest warrant, the task force arrived at Ronald's sister's house on Bayou Blue Road. When she told them where he'd gone, they swiftly descended on the homeless shelter where they arrested Ronald and charged him with first-degree murder, second-degree murder, and aggravated rape. Ronald didn't show any emotion when he was arrested and was notably compliant, just as he had been in his previous interview. Following his arrest and over two days of police questioning, Ronald confessed to raping and murdering at least 23 men and dumping their bodies in the sugarcane fields, ditches, and small bayous across the Six Parish area. During his confession, Ronald wept, sniveled, sobbed, and wailed as he recounted how viciously he raped his victims. But listener, he wasn't crying for his victims. No, he was crying for himself, and the prospect of what he knew awaited him in jail. In between his bouts of unrestrained self-pity, he told investigators that he sometimes drove a small black or white pickup around the streets of Homa and nearby towns at night, usually between 10 p.m. and 2 a.m., looking for men who were down on their luck and out to make a quick buck. With an easy, helpful manner and a non-threatening physical appearance, he picked up men who were hitchhiking on the side of the road or from public spaces like motel car parks and convenience stores. Ronald explained that he got to know the back roads of local areas well. There was jobs as pizza delivery driver and meter reader. He also claimed to be quickly able to determine just by looking at someone whether they were open to the proposition to fool around with him or whether he would need to rely on another ruse. The strategy involved Ronald luring men into his car with the promise of selling them drugs or sex with a fictitious but attractive woman whose picture he showed them, explaining that she was his wife. Ronald told investigators he also frequented area gay bars, targeting men he thought would be open to having sex for money. Ronald would drive the men to wherever his trailer was parked. If it was a homosexual encounter, he would then feign nerves and ask the men to tie themselves up to make Ronald feel more comfortable. The men had been lured back to the promise of having sex with a woman. Ronald told his victims that his wife was shy and wanted her partners to be tied before entering the room. Ronald explained that if the men allowed themselves to be tied up, he raped them, then suffocated or strangled them before dumping their bodies in the cane fields or remote bayous. Ronald told police that if a man refused to be tied up, he would let them go, unharmed, but that if they cried out during the assaults, he would gag them by stuffing a towel in their mouths. He explained that at no stage did he drug any of his victims, that all of them were voluntarily tied up. Ronald told investigators that it was following his traumatic experience in jail in 1996 that he made the decision to kill his victims after raping them to prevent them from testifying. Put simply, Ronald would rather kill someone after raping them than let the victim go and face the possibility of returning to jail. When asked about the lack of DNA at many of the dump sites, Ronald explained that he always had to protect his sex with his victims to avoid detection but acknowledged that there may have been occasions, such as with Manuel Reed, where the condom broke. If any of his victims bled from the face, Ronald placed a plastic bag over their heads to minimize having to clean up the blood, then removed the bag when he dumped the bodies. He stated that he didn't keep souvenirs from any of his victims, discarding all their clothes and personal belongings that weren't found with their bodies. Ronald was adamant that in all the encounters, the men later attacked him, and fearing for his life, he felt he had no option but to kill them out of self-defense. In the following audio from his taped interview, Ronald can be heard confessing to the task force members, Lieutenant Don Bergeron and Lieutenant Dennis Thornton, of the Terrebonne and Jefferson Parish Sheriff Offices about the murder of Daytrell Woods. It's now December 3rd, 2006. It's 2.09 a.m. Uh, statement being obtained by Lieutenant Don Bergeron and the, of the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office and Lieutenant Dennis Thornton of the Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Office. The location of the statement is going to be the Terrebonne Parish Sheriff's Office. And um, could you state your full name, please? Ronald Joseph Dominic. A few hours ago, you had given a statement before, is that correct? Yeah. 
and you're giving another statement right now to clear up some more things that you wish to discuss with us. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Now let's start. I'm going to show you a picture with the number 13 labeled on. It's a picture of a black male named Daytrail Woods. Does this person look familiar? Yes. Why does he look familiar? Because I had sex with him. What made him get into your vehicle? What did y'all talk about? And what did you tell him? I was going to pay him money to have sex with him. So where did you go with him? I went to many stores. What many stores did you go to? He ran to the I told him I wanted to take in the butt. He had to be tired because I didn't want to get hurt. And he agreed to that? Yes. So did you tie him? Yes. He was okay with this? Yes, he was still not sure what I was going to do to him. And what happened to him? He was Did you have sex with him? Yes. Did you rape him? Yes. What did you do? I raped him and I choked him and then I brought him to the church. What church? Um, I went to a church. Describe what's by the church. A white church of Satan. Okay, is there anything else by the church? A pizza place. And what else? And many stores. Now we spoke a little bit, and I think we're going to clear this up right now, Ronald, about. All the other statements you gave before, you pretty much talked about what happened. You indicated earlier that a lot of these men, or all of these men that you picked up, you brought back to a place and they wanted you or they were going to have sex with you. And, and then you, you basically said that it was either over being fearful that they were going to go to the police or they were going to hurt you or rob you, they wanted more money. And, and that's not totally true now, right? Don't we have to clear that up? Yes. And what, what actually did happen to some of these guys? How did you actually pick them up? Some of them I picked up saying that I showed them a picture of a girl. Okay, and I said that they went to fool around with the girl. And the girl had got hurt, right? And had to be tied before she comes over. They had to be tied. Yes. Okay. But it wasn't true. It was sweet. So why did you have to use a picture? It's the easiest way to get it there. Could you have done it any other way? <laughs> some of them were straight, some of them wasn't. It didn't matter to you whether they were straight or not? No. Just man. I just took it out and you had no reason. And what would they do then? They said it wasn't like that. I still do rape them. Were they all rape? Yes. They were all rape. And when we talk about rape, they all they all thought that uh, they were going to either have what? Either have sex with a woman or, or money. Or money. But they were, but all of them that we're talking about, when they didn't thought they were going to have sex with a woman and money or me and money. But in essence, all of them. God, what? what? What type of sex did they get? Right. It was against their will. Yes. Okay. And then what did they get? Strangled. Were they all strangled, Ronald, pretty much in the same way? Yeah. Did any of them, when they struggled, did they get to fight with them? Yes. Were you glad it stopped them? Yes. What would have happened had we not uh, brought you in? I don't know. I'm just glad to stop. I didn't mean to do this. Do you think it would have continued? Maybe so. I'm just hurt. I'm sorry. I can't get it out of my mind. It went on. These people, they're all dead now. You know, they're not with their family. They're family suffering. What else? I just want everybody to give me I'm sorry. Okay. Wow. Everything you stated here is truthful to the best of your knowledge. Yes. The statement is now ended December 3rd, 2006. It's 2.52 a.m. End of statement.
Ronald recounted to investigators how things transpired with his individual victims. He explained how in 1997 he picked up David Mitchell, who was walking outside of a gay bar. Ronald claimed that David agreed to have sex as he was in need of money, but once David was tied up, Ronald raped and strangled him, then dumped him in a drainage canal. Ronald met Oliver LeBanks in 1998 at the Rawhide Bar in New Orleans. After talking for a while, the pair left, walked down St. Anne Street, and got into the back seat of Ronald's station wagon, where Oliver Reed agreed to perform oral sex on Ronald for $30. Ronald then pushed Oliver onto his stomach and had anal sex. Afterwards, he told Oliver to rub his penis on Ronald's buttocks. Ronald then claimed that Oliver tried to rape him. He hit Oliver with a tire iron repeatedly until he lost consciousness and choked him to death with his own hands and then his belt before dumping Oliver's body. In May 1999, Ronald met Manuel Reed at a bar and propositioned him for sex. Ronald claimed they retired to the back seat of his car where Manuel performed oral sex. Ronald then had anal sex with Manuel, but claimed that when Manuel tried to penetrate Ronald and demanded money, Ronald reached down into the footwell of the car, grabbed a tire iron, and hit Manuel. Ronald stated he then got scared and choked Manuel with the seatbelt before driving his body to the dumpster where he was later found. When Ronald approached Mitchell Johnson three months later, he showed him a photo of a woman and asked if he wanted to be paid to have sex with her. Ronald claimed that when Mitchell threatened him in the car at knife point for money, Ronald hit him and then he choked him. Ronald celebrated New Year's Eve 1999 by picking up Michael Vincent for sex. But when Michael felt things were getting out of hand and threatened to call the police, Ronald responded by strangling him to death. In October 2002, when Anoka Jones was out riding his bike, Ronald pulled his black pickup alongside him and started talking about how Anoka could make some money. Ronald claimed that after Anoka agreed to be tied up, he then raped and strangled him, covered him with a blanket, and drove towards New Orleans, where he disposed of the body. Ronald claimed to have picked up Michael Barnett in October 2004 from a gas station near the Sugar Bowl Motel after Michael approached Ronald offering sex for money. Ronald stated he offered Michael $20 and took him back to his trailer for oral sex. Ronald claimed that after he had anal sex with Michael, the latter asked for more money and threatened to go to the police. In response, Ronald strangled Michael with an extension cord and drove to a mini storage facility where he dumped Michael's body. Ronald told police that in August 2005, Wayne Smith flagged him down at a convenience store. He said Wayne asked him if he was looking for drugs or wanting to fool around. Ronald followed Wayne home two streets over so he could drop off his bike, and then Wayne got in Ronald's car. The pair drove to Ronald's trailer, which was parked at the Dixie shipyard. Once they got there and Wayne got undressed, Ronald claimed he was scared he would be raped so he tied Wayne's hands with a rope. When Wayne asked for money and threatened to call the police, Ronald strangled him with an extension cord and redressed him before dumping the body. Ronald met Nicholas Pellegrin in November 2005 while working as a meter reader in the neighborhood where Nicholas was working on his friend's house. The pair got talking and Nicholas gave Ronald his phone number on the agreement that they would later meet up so Ronald could buy some weed. Ronald claimed that when he picked Nicholas up a couple of nights later and went back to Ronald's trailer, Nicholas demanded more money and threatened to go to the police. Ronald told police that when he tried to tie Nicholas up, he kicked him in retaliation. Ronald threw Nicholas across the trailer and he hit a cabinet and collapsed on the floor. In October 2006, Ronald picked up his final victim, Christopher Sutterfield, from the motel where Christopher was staying and took him to a storage facility where they engaged in sexual acts. Afterward, Ronald hit Christopher on the head and then strangled him. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each, then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 
The day after his confession ended, Ronald directed task force officers to all 23 dump sites. The Home Courier newspaper reported that when Ronald appeared in court on December 4, 2006, on the two original charges, he was in a wheelchair by this stage had been diagnosed with three arterial blockages. Ronald was playing the role of the ailing invalid to his full advantage. Surely a man in a wheelchair couldn't have been capable of the things he was being accused of. On December 12, 2006, additional charges were laid against Ronald for rape and first-degree murder, and he was held in Terrebonne Parish Jail. The additional charges related to the rape and murders of Kenneth Randolph, Michael Barnett, Leon Lorette, August Watkins, Kirk Cunningham, Alonzo Hogan, Chris DeVille, Wayne Smith, and Nicholas Pellegrin. Bail was set for $1 million for each case in which Ronald was charged in the parish, totaling $8 million. The Terrebonne Parish DA announced their intention to seek the death penalty when the case went to trial. The ripple effect of Ronald's actions struck a heavy blow for the gay community in small towns like Homa and Thibodeau. In socially conservative rural southeastern Louisiana, members of the LGBTQI community continue to struggle daily for acceptance. Following Ronald's arrest, media coverage focused heavily on the salacious aspects of the case, including the fact that Ronald identified as gay and reports that many of his male victims engaged in sex work. This in turn only fueled suspicion and apprehension of anyone openly identifying as LGBTQI in the communities affected by the murders. On January 8, 2007, 43-year-old Ronald appeared in Jefferson Parish Court to hear the two murder charges against him for Oliver LeBanks and Manuel Reed. However, investigators had determined that the men were killed in New Orleans and not Jefferson Parish as originally thought. As a result, the charges were dropped, with New Orleans PD now having oversight of the two original charges in the cases of Manuel Reed and Oliver LeBanks. A similar jurisdictional matter arose over the charges relating to Kenneth Randolph, whose body was found in Terrebonne, but who was believed to have been killed outside the parish. At his arraignment in Terrebonne Parish on January 16, Ronald initially pled not guilty to the eight counts of first-degree murder. Several of the victims' families attended and were visibly distressed when the plea was announced. Following the arraignment, Wayne Smith's mother, Angela, told the media, I want to see him in jail to suffer, but before they lock him up, I want to ask him why. Why did he kill my son? What were my son's last words before he died? I didn't even get to see the body before Wayne's burial because of what this man did to the body. I buried a box. In what some said was a bid to delay court proceedings, Ronald claimed to have had two heart attacks in as many months, and his defense team filed a motion requesting a stay in proceedings on the basis that Ronald required bypass surgery. Following an independent medical exam, Ronald was granted leave for heart surgery. Ronald next returned to court in early May 2008. Representatives from Lafouche and Jefferson Parish Sheriff's Offices and the Jefferson Parish Coroner's Office presented various types of evidence, including interview transcripts, crime scene photographs, and autopsy reports. It was apparent by this stage that based on the available evidence, should Ronald choose to proceed with a not-guilty plea, the state was in a strong position to secure both a guilty conviction and the death penalty. Discussion commenced about what a plea deal would mean for both the families of the victims and for Ronald as a punishment. Assistant DA Mark Rhodes consulted with the families of the victims about a potential sentence. He explained to them that Ronald's worst fear was not death, but jail, and in this instance, would in fact be the worst punishment available. After long discussions, the family almost unanimously agreed that given the circumstances, Life in prison for Ronald was actually the more harsh, yet just punishment. The only family who was vocal in their disagreement was that of Nicholas Pellegrin, whose mother Veronica told the local print media, It hurts a lot, knowing that this man did this to my kid and other kids. He took my kid's life from me, and I'll never forgive this man. Ronald accepted the plea deal, pleading guilty in September to eight counts of first-degree murder. In return the state announced it would not pursue a capital case. Part 8. The Fat Lady Sings On September 23, 2008, 
44-year-old Ronald Dominique appeared before Terrebonne Parish District Judge Randall Beth in a court, in a courtroom filled with police, lawyers, and family members of the eight victims Ronald had been charged with murdering. Assistant DA Mark Rhodes told the court, The lives of eight young men were taken from these families by the actions of the defendant. He knew nothing about them or their families, and he callously killed the victims and left a lifetime of pain as their legacy. Like a two-headed hydra of pain and terror, he swept through our parish and indiscriminately meted out his own form of self-protection. The assistant DA also read letters from victims' families who weren't able to attend, as well as his own statement on behalf of the victims' families. Relatives of seven of the victims gave emotional victim impact statements toward the end of the 90-minute sentencing hearing. Kirk Cunningham's brother, Chris, addressed Ronald with the following, Kurt didn't deserve to die the way he did. Any punishment given to this man would never compare to the horrible death he did to my brother. My brother is in a better place. He's finally home. The negative impact this has caused my family is beyond comprehension. Kurt was a good kid. He can never grow old. The pain will never go away. I'll miss him to the day I die. I hope hell finds you fast. Alonzo Hogan's sister, Cynthia, spoke on behalf of the family, saying, It hurts me every day. I have to see my mom go through this. How could you do something so cruel? He didn't deserve to die. Not like this. Every day, we have to live with this. He didn't have no drug problem. He wasn't gay. He just had mental problems. I have to forgive you. My brother wasn't just a person on crack. He has already forgiven you, Mr. Dominique. So I have to try to forget the hate in my heart. Wayne Smith's mother, Angela, wrote a letter to the court that said, It's been three years and I haven't seen my baby yet. I put something in the ground and I really don't know if my child is dead or not. Because I did not get a chance to see my baby. I did not get to see my boy for the last time. No goodbye. To say I love you one more time. How did you kill my son? I can't sleep at night. I can't think right no more. Christaville's sister, Cynthia, told the court, The nature of what he did, and how he left my brother's body in a cane field for rodents to eat him. I know he had problems. Everybody has problems. He was on drugs. He did things he shouldn't do. But he still had respect for my mother. We loved him, cared about him. I never imagined I would lose him that way. No matter what they do to him, It won't bring him back. When we found him, he was bones. We had to bury bones. You wanted to lead a lifestyle where you didn't want to leave victims behind. People didn't care about him, but I did. Ronald declined to make a statement to the court before his sentence was announced. With no one left to address the court, Ronald was convicted of eight counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to eight consecutive life sentences. In Louisiana... Life means life. There is no possibility of parole. Judge Beth in a court sentenced Ronald without comment. After the sentencing, Ronald's sister spoke with the victim's families privately in the court. Lonzo Hogan's sister, Cynthia, later told the Homa Times newspaper, My heart went out to Ronald's sister. She cried the whole time she talked because she said she don't know what got a hold of her brother because they weren't raised that kind of way. They just don't know what happened to him. She was saying a day don't go by without her feeling what the families must be going through. And she said it's hurting her until this day. It can't bring back what he did because now he's gone for life and that's still affecting them too. It wasn't her. It was him. But the legal process hadn't quite ended for Ronald. He was again indicted on October 30th, 2008 by a Lafouche grand jury for the murder of Christopher Sutterfield and in mid-November was transferred to Lafouche Parish Jail to await trial. Thankfully for Christopher's family and friends, in early December 2008, Ronald pled guilty to Christopher's murder. It was later revealed that the man who Ronald had been charged with raping back in 1996 actually knew Larry Matthews, who was Ronald's 14th victim. The survivor told the Homa Courier newspaper that he'd often wondered what happened to Larry, commenting, It takes a real smart person to get away with murder for that long. 
These days, 55-year-old Ronald continues to be incarcerated at the Louisiana State Penitentiary in Angola, where he spends 23 hours of every day in a one-out cell with one hour for recreation and a shower. He hasn't always been well-behaved on the inside, in one instance throwing hot water at another inmate. He is now reported to have endeared himself to other inmates and spends the majority of his time alone. Even though Ronald is now where he belongs, the lifelong impact of his actions continue to be felt, not only by the survivors and his victims' families and friends, but also the next generation. In an interview with the Home at Times newspaper in 2010, Lonzo Hogan's sister, Cynthia, spoke of her heartbreak and the knowledge that her late brother will never know his youngest daughter, Angel, who was born just two months after her father was murdered, saying, She is just like him. It hurts every time I see her. She wasn't even born when he got killed. He wasn't here to even see his little girl. Lonzo was a quiet person, which everybody knew out there. He was very few in words. If you didn't say nothing to him, he wasn't going to say nothing. All he liked was his little hobbies. His hobby was fishing. He would fish every day if he could. And if he didn't fish, he would ride his bike every day. That was a car to him. He would ride his bike everywhere. He was on the slow side, but he didn't bother nobody. He had his little friends he would hang out with and stuff. But other than that, he would just stay to himself. Never gave anybody no trouble. Never bothered anybody. So nobody ever bothered him. My main thing is... I hope Ronald finds Christ through that, because through it all, God still was going to forgive him. I looked at it like, as bad as it was, he must have had a serious problem himself. I'm fine with it the way it is, because I just feel like whatever journey he's going to get, he's going to get. Even if it's just being locked up, why take his life? I feel like he'll suffer regardless. Cynthia manages her lifelong grief by finding solace in prayer. That's really all I can do. If it wouldn't be for God, I don't know. I just pray. It don't stop me from crying and missing him and all that. But I just pray. That's all I can do. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. 